0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Andrew Cuomo's father, Mario, was a three-term governor of New York. And uh, during his own term as governor of the state since 2011, Andrew was celebrated for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, but later it was revealed that his management of the crisis left much to be desired. Thousands died because, ignoring the advice of experts, he shut down schools and businesses too late and returned still-sick patients to nursing homes. The crisis was exacerbated by his earlier commitment to austerity, which included cuts to hospital funding. In his new book, The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus and the Fall of New York, Ross Barkin who writes regularly for The Guardian and Jacobin, gives a detailed look into the governor's handling of coronavirus and his time overall in the highest office of the state. It's published by OR Books, and I'm very pleased to welcome Ross Barkin to our show now, hello.
1: Hi, thank you for having me, very excited to be on.
0: Well, so much has happened over the past 18 months. Where was Governor Cuomo's focus at the the start? When was he first briefed on COVID-19?
1: A good question. I'm sure he was briefed on it in February, perhaps even January. And, you know, my book really looks at this past year, which was a hellish year for New York and and for the nation, and examines really what went wrong in New York in particular, and and how Cuomo, in many ways, did fail fundamentally. And I mean, one of the striking features of his response, which I really found through going through through the news transcripts and revisiting that uh, episode was how he downplayed the threat of coronavirus. We associate this with Donald Trump comparing COVID to the flu, saying it's not a big deal. Andrew Cuomo well into March of 2020 is saying that the fear is worse than the virus itself. He's likening it to the common flu. He is talking about how Ebola and SARS were the real threats. And he is someone who is not really creating any kind of alarm um, among people listening, among viewers. And that was just very striking how he really rhetorically at least never took COVID seriously until
0: it was too late. And so when did he mandate that all non-essential businesses be closed? And uh, at that point... How many cases of COVID-19 had been reported throughout the state?
1: So Andrew Cuomo did the full shutdown order for the state. He called it New York pause on about March 22nd, 2020, and that was – several days after Mayor Bill de Blasio, who would also been delayed in his response to COVID, said that New York should shelter in place like California. It was about five days or so Cuomo waited from the point Bill de Blasio was suggesting to do it to when it was actually done. So by that time, there were Thousands of cases of COVID. There were cases that that had been tested, and there were also many, many thousands of cases that were never even recorded because testing was so scant at that time, if you remember. So the first case of COVID is confirmed on March 1st in New York City. My guess is that COVID was proliferating in New York well before then. So already it is spreading in March, and it's very clear to most public health experts that this is exponential, this is going to be serious, and you have to take radical steps quickly to at least head off the worst of it. And instead, Bill de Blasio is telling people to go out and have a good time, and Andrew Cuomo is standing up in front of the media and declaring that people should not be afraid and that COVID-19 is not to be feared. And we've been through Ebola and and SARS. And that messaging was extremely counterproductive.
0: In light of their well-known dislike for each other, how did Cuomo and Bill de de Blasio come together at least early on in their response to the virus? Were they arriving at these things separately?
1: They did appear together at news conferences in early March that they were jointly addressing reporters, but in terms of the actual behind the scenes response, there was very little coordination. Cuomo very quickly gained dramatic emergency powers to do whatever he pleased in the state. So in essence, he didn't need De Blasio for anything in terms of uh, decision-making. So whether it was coordinating where patients should go in terms of which hospitals were overrun or you know whether it was deciding when new york city could shut down or or what could happen to schools to businesses this was all being done by cuomo and de blasio is mostly sidelined and bill de blasio certainly played a role in this failure but fundamentally it's about a power dynamic the governor of new york is the most powerful figure in the state by far cuomo is someone who wields power incredibly effectively and and sometimes destructively. And the mayor of New York City is just one more county leader among many in the state in in terms of how the law works. And that was the reality of COVID. It was Andrew Cuomo deciding what would be done and what would not be done. And it was the city of New York that really had to wait and see. And, And certainly the mayor and his health department had to wait and see what Andrew Cuomo would do next.
0: Well, you note that even earlier, at the end of February 2020, Governor Cuomo emphasized the importance of building testing capacity for the coronavirus in New York. But he said that this and the C, he said that the CDC had approved the state's test. But at the same time, he compared the virus to a hurricane in that it can be very unpredictable. Might we be a bit unfair from our current vantage point to negatively judge his early actions and statements?
1: I don't think so because the the hurricane comment is coming at the end of February, if I recall, you know, by that point, even New
0: York was already epicenter in this country. Yes.
1: Yes. So by, by the time he's comparing it to a hurricane, China has been overrun. Italy has been overrun. COVID has appeared in the United States. I think this was around the time that one of the, uh, Members of the CDC had said, you know, life is going to fundamentally change in America. So public health experts and people who are following COVID, even just people reading the New York Times every day, could see this was going to get very serious. So this idea that COVID could merely pass us by made no sense. And it, and it made no sense, particularly at that juncture. You know, you could argue maybe in December of 2019, when, when no one even knew what COVID was, or January, perhaps. But it was clear this was exponential. This was spreading. <clears throat> it was international. So it, it's fair to judge executives harshly, because it is their job to get it right. Look, uh, what else, what I'll say but, is but that- But wait, can I interrupt yeah. for
0: just a second? Sure. But the White House sure. was also uh, reassuring people that this was something that was going to go away in a very short time. So maybe the feeling was well okay we might overreact at this point sure
1: uh what i would say is that given that donald trump was president at the time any executive has to be prepared to go at it alone if you look at the response in washington state for example they really put forward from the very beginning. Jay Inslee, the county executive um, in Seattle, they were putting public health experts at the front of the response. They were speaking at news conferences. They were telling people, you have to take this seriously. They were coordinating an early school shutdown, which at the time was really about warning people about COVID to, to take it seriously. So smart executives could see the federal government was only only going to do so much. Obviously, Trump failed. Um, That's that that's clear. COVID is very tough to deal with. You know, I I don't think any president or any governor could have prevented people from dying. Could have prevented probably tens of thousands, two hundred thousands of people from dying, right? But it's always it's a it's a matter of of quantity and it's a matter of preventing. The death that is there, and New York did not have to be the epicenter of the epicenter. It did not have to be the worst of the worst. If you're going by death rate, it was the second worst in America, next to New Jersey. And if you're going by death toll, it's also second worst, next to California, which is a much bigger state but had a bigger raw death total. So it was not inevitable that New York would be so more ravaged than everywhere else. And that's really where decision-making comes into play.
0: Now, Governor Cuomo was given expansive emergency powers in a bill that allotted $40 million in funding to fight COVID-19. What was the significance of, of those expanded powers? The significance was
1: that it gave Cuomo unilateral authority to do almost anything he wanted in New York state. And this persisted for a very long time where Cuomo could make any decision pertaining to public safety, to the closure of businesses, to really almost anything without legislative input, without, any kind of real oversight. And on one hand, you need, in times of emergency, executives do need to act. And I'm not going to argue against having some emergency powers. You know, the issue was these powers persisted for a very long time, even after, you know, COVID was such a pressing daily threat, you know, past the peak of of the real suffering. And, you know, it's, you, you could go back and look at the time, and and there were legislators who were very concerned about it, uh, worried well, about you know, it. what would it mean, right? And, and so I think what it, what it really meant was that Cuomo could really decide to do whatever he wanted to do, and someone like Bill de Blasio or someone like a state legislator really had no recourse. It was Andrew Cuomo's dominion, um, and, and he
0: would decide uh, how people would live and the new york aclu compared the law unfavorably to anti-terrorism provisions that were passed after 9/11 yes
1: and some were of the they horses? overreacting no i don't think so no because anytime there's an expansion of executive power you worry about those powers being permanent and being used in other ways and and you saw that with 9/11 where Te- what were supposed to be temporary measures became permanent. You, the permanent expansion of this national security state. I, I think. I think in regards to here, we never saw the civil liberties violations that were feared. At least not not in such an extreme way. You know, I don't. I don't think of you know closing a business necessarily is a civil liberties violation. Though, in retrospect, knowing what we know about COVID, we probably could have gotten by with strong mask wearing and more businesses being open. Um, but. The the those civil liberties fears never quite came to pass that there weren't these forced quarantines and people being thrown in detention and, and being treated extremely harshly. But giving one person that much executive authority is always something that civil liberties watchdogs have to be concerned about. And it's something everyday people should worry about too.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York, ninety-nine point five FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. dot org. My guest is Ross Barkan, whose book, "The Prince: Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York," is published by Or Books. And uh, you you suggest that he probably there wouldn't be an Andrew if there hadn't been a Mario. I guess that's why you call it the Prince. Also, wasn't he helped by the fact that? Uh, his former wife, the human rights advocate Kerry Kennedy, is the daughter of Robert and Ethel Kennedy, and they were married for 15 years while he was establishing his career. So yes, you know, ha- having both
1: a pedigree um, in in the Cuomo family and also in the Kennedy family certainly together it means a lot in politics. I think it was more significant he was Mario's son. This really gives him an entry point into New York politics at a very young age, working on his father's campaign for mayor as a teenager, working as a very young aide in his father's gubernatorial administration after he wins in 1982.
0: Wait, can I ask about that? Uh, Yes. Is the story true that when his father was running for governor against Ed Koch, Andrew posted signs in Queens that said, vote for Cuomo, not the homo? It's
1: un unconfirmed to this day. Ed Koch believed it was true. It's it's something that lacks substantiation. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to weigh in one way or another. Um, but you know that was kind of Andrew Cuomo's role for his father. He was really an enforcer and a, and a fixer. He was someone who had to make the tough phone calls to get legislators to listen to his father. He was someone who was really supposed to be striking fear into the hearts of friends, enemies, and rivals alike. And and he really comes of age in Albany, seeing how government works at a very young age. And he later becomes HUD secretary in his 30s, thanks to his father, You know, Mario Cuomo, someone who knew Bill Clinton very well. Remember, Mario Cuomo is being considered for the Supreme Court. So he was a, a figure in that era who was taken very seriously by national Democrats and very seriously by the likes of the Clinton administration. So you can certainly say that without the Cuomo pedigree, without Mario being there to, you know, give his son such a a such a tutorial in, in government and give him these jobs and, and these entry points. He, he would not be governor of New York today if you, if you were not the son of a um, three-term governor, who
0: is popular in, in his day, though flawed. I liked him a lot. Uh, and he has uh, honored his father by naming a bridge after him. Um, he did.
1: Uh, the Tappan Zee Bridge is now the Mario Cuomo Bridge, which some people were not pleased about, but but I think others were fine with.
0: So when did things turn around? When were New York State schools closed for in-person learning and uh, why, wasn't Mayor De Blasio a bit more reluctant to close schools at that time? Yes.
1: Yeah, so Bill De Blasio was reluctant to do it. I, I think, understandably, given what type of dis, what what would that mean for for students learning at home? And as we know, remote learning has been mostly a failure, given that the city did not have the capability to really do remote learning well. Andrew Cuomo very cynically and wisely avoided the school reopening and closing debate. But this is an example of where he had absolute authority to do it. Remember with these emergency powers, Andrew Cuomo could decide when any school opened or closed and it wasn't really Bill de Blasio's decision. And you'd see periodically throughout the pandemic where Bill de Blasio would make an announcement about schools or about anything. And Andrew Cuomo would be asked about it and go, well, we'll see, mm-hmm. You know, he can say that, but it's my decision. Um, And so at school closures, Cuomo dithered. He certainly dithered on a statewide shutdown. Other states did statewide school shutdowns before Cuomo, including Ohio and in Michigan, I think even Florida, I'd have to look at that. So states were doing it. And again, the idea is just to really communicate to the public, look, this is a serious health threat. We've got to shut down now. We could try to reopen later. Um, So Cuomo really dodges that debate until his hand is forced, and he does do a statewide shutdown order, and then New York City schools close as well. And that and that was in March of 2020.
0: Wasn't the uh, the 2020 state budget, which needed to be voted on by April 1st, uh, the the first one to be negotiated over the phone and, and video conference? Uh, what yes, was, I mean uh, that was what was his most important priority done. regarding that budget? So, sorry. What was Governor Cuomo's most important priority regarding that budget?
1: I mean, I mean, that that budget really became about the immunity clause for for nursing homes and and hospitals. So one of the major scandals of the pandemic was how New York undercounted deaths in nursing homes where Cuomo would not count people who got sick in nursing homes, but died in hospitals. And this really made no sense. And it was really designed so nursing homes could have an artificially low death toll, whereas the overall death toll of the state wouldn't change. But Cuomo could say, hey, people didn't die in nursing homes. And one of the issues was the the hospitals and the nursing homes, who are very powerful in the state. The hospital lobby is one of the most powerful lobbies in New York State. They pushed very hard to have a sweeping immunity protection sweeping immunity protections that would protect these healthcare facilities and hospitals from really all types of lawsuits, not just related to COVID, but almost anything, any medical malpractice. And they would be retroactive to early March. So if you had a family member who got sick and died from COVID and you felt like the nursing home failed you, the hospital failed you, you'd have no legal recourse. If you even had a medical medical malpractice issue, you'd have no legal recourse. And and these this type of immunity provision was remarkable in its sweep and its scope. And it really never been seen in such a way, certainly in New York. And ironically, it would be the model, the type of legislation that Mitch McConnell would pursue in Washington unsuccessfully. And there were fights in Washington about how McConnell was shilling for the healthcare industry, pushing these immunity provisions, and the stimulus bill that did not make it in. And little did people understand that it was in democratic new york that these immunity provisions were put into effect and so when you have an immunity like this it basically turns a nursing home into a dumping ground right you can do what you want you can put bodies there and there's no there's no recourse for anyone who's suffering or for family members who are suffering so there's there's no incentive for a hospital or nursing home to treat a person terribly well because there's no threat of liability.
0: So Um, was his Emergency Disaster Treatment Protection Act all that different from Mitch McConnell's federal immunity bill?
1: um, It's a good question. I have to look at the language more, but but I know the sort of immunity that McConnell was pursuing was similar to what had already been implemented in New York. I mean, I'd have to look at the particulars and really dig into legislation and, and language a bit. But they certainly were similar. And um, it, there, there's little doubt in my mind that McConnell, in casting about for models, could find an easy one in the state of
0: New York. Well, since we already knew at that time that the elderly were the most vulnerable segment of the population, what was the thinking behind issuing that directive? And what advice did uh, Cuomo receive from health experts on the idea of issuing a directive ordering nursing homes to accept COVID-19 patients who were discharged The, the directive, from hospitals. which was
1: ordered in March of 2020, uh, according to Cuomo, came, upon, came from advice the CDC gave. And when I re- looked into this and reported on it, the CDC was not at all ordering nursing homes to accept COVID patients. Like, th- this was not... Real, this was not real CDC guidance. This was there was no command. It was more of a general recommendation of something you can do. It, it was there. No state was compelled to do it. So you start there, and the Cuomo administration argues they had to free up capacity for hospitals, and they, that's why they had to send these people back to nursing homes. And, and that was understandable since a lot of hospitals were being overwhelmed. But there were also temporary hospitals that were never filled. That nursing home patients could have been transferred to, you know, the Javits Center Hospital, there's one at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center, and these hospitals were never utilized to any great degree, and they probably could have been used for these nursing home patients instead of sending them back to, to nursing homes where COVID continued to spread. It, it's somewhat debatable whether this directive led to the spreading of COVID in nursing homes, and in, in terms of, I would argue, that regardless COVID was going to spread in these nursing homes, they'd poor PPE, poor practices. And I don't blame Cuomo directly for the epidemic in the homes themselves, but certainly the the directive probably
0: made it worse. He did uh, resist sending PPE to nursing homes when they requested it in some cases. And wasn't there another provision written into the state budget at the last minute? Um Robert Mujica Robert which which playing a role
1: in that. Sorry, which
0: one? Robert the budget director Robert Mujica. Oh, so talking,
1: so Robert Mujica. So you're yeah. you're you're referring to the the cost cutting power yes. that that Cuomo had. Yes. So Robert Mujica Cuomo's budget director in an incredibly powerful person in the state of New York really Empowered during the pandemic to, to set the budget for the state almost unilaterally, and 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 so at the last minute, with the enabling of the state legislature, uh, Cuomo wins powers to enact unilateral cuts throughout the year, um, because you know COVID was causing economic devastation, and and he could enact these cuts outside of the budget process. <laughs> and the state legislature would have a certain amount of time to respond to the cuts, but um, they would have fairly um, little recourse. And and so this process was, was quite unprecedented and bizarre in many ways, but what ultimately happened was, to confuse people even more, instead of going through this process of unilateral cuts and, and getting giving the legislature a chance to respond, Mujica and Cuomo do something I would argue is even worse where they just start withholding money from schools and social services and local governments. And, and they, they don't call them cuts, they call them withholdings on a legal technicality, arguing that they're temporary. And these withholdings are the same thing as budget cuts and they get to circumvent the process they created where the legislature would have some role to respond with their own suggested cuts. So basically what ends up happening throughout 2020 is Mujica starts withholding money, cutting money from various um, cities and states, from social services, from the City University of New York. And it causes a lot of quiet suffering. I mean, CUNY got federal money um, we got money from the state, you know, propped up by the federal government in 2021. But the 2020 school year really was a disaster and classes were cut, class class sizes were inordinately large, and it created a lot of chaos. And it didn't have to be this way. Cuomo could have raised taxes on the rich, or he could have held off on on these cuts until federal money showed up, and instead he decided to pursue them and refused to enact any kind
0: of revenue raisers, which eventually he was forced to do in 2021. But later in that spring of 2020, Governor Cuomo's approval ratings hit 77 percent uh, because he was giving daily press brief- briefings uh, that were covered nationally by MSNBC and CNN. Wasn't anybody talking about all the problems that he had caused?
1: Yes and no, Cuomo really became a hero in March and April of 2020 at a time where most people were shut up indoors watching TV and Donald Trump was incendiary and lying about COVID and telling people to drink bleach. So you can imagine anyone would look good next to Donald Trump and Andrew Cuomo speaking with his PowerPoints with some gravitas emerged as a leader filling this vacuum, though the decisions he made were not good and he did not save the state from suffering by appearing on TV every day and taking on this FDR role as as the fireside chatter. He was able to gain a lot of popularity. People enjoyed the press briefings. They have little else to do. They were terrified. And anytime someone criticized Cuomo, they would say, well, we got Donald Trump. Hmm. And one could argue Trump and Cuomo each failed during COVID, but that would require some nuance and nuance doesn't always do well on cable television.
0: And Cuomo seemed to be a lot more open uh, than Trump, despite the fact that he's not the most ingratiating speaker
1: Right. Well, Cuomo creates the sense that he is straight shooting, that he is speaking with facts, that he is following the science, he speaks with authority, he doesn't seem unhinged, he doesn't seem like he is completely separated from reality. And and when the standard is Trump, a lot of people can look good. And Cuomo sitting in the media capital of the world. Um, and and I think that really plays a role And You know, I, I'm not really, I'm not convinced that, you know, Cuomo, I, I don't know if Cuomo would be such a hero had there been a different president. If Joe Biden had been president during COVID. I do
0: think the reaction would have been very different. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Sparkin, who teaches journalism at NYU and uh, Saint Joseph's College, Brooklyn, and uh, he writes for any number of publications. And he's written a book called *The Prince: Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York*, published by OR Books. Um, So at the same time that his approval rating is going up, there are problems in places like the Cobble Hill Health Center, a nursing home in Brooklyn. How was the governor able to cover up the number of people dying in the nursing homes?
1: He did it through the way he decided to account for deaths. And, And this was a decision he and his health department made, which was that if someone got sick in a nursing home and got transferred to a hospital where they died, they would simply not count as a nursing home death. Mm. And these hospital transfer deaths were omitted from the nursing home death toll for many, many months. That didn't change until January of this year, when the Attorney General Tish James puts out a report um, that confirms what many journalists and many state legislators and many watchdogs assumed, which was that the Death toll nursing home is artificially low. The Cuomo administration refuses to say why they are counting this way. they never give a logical, straightforward explanation. And then overnight, Once James puts out this report, the nursing home death toll increases. It's important to remember Cuomo wasn't hiding deaths from the overall death toll in the state. The overall death toll doesn't change. What changes is the number of people who died in nursing homes. And this matters because you need good data to make good decisions. If you want to prevent the next pandemic, you need to know what happened in this one, and you can't be relying on faulty data, and and that was the fundamental problem. Cuomo was downplaying the problem there to burnish his own reputation, to make himself look better, to say he tamed it in nursing homes. New York was not the only state that had problems with COVID deaths in nursing homes. Nursing homes are really death traps. They are not always well run. They do not all have good protocols. So, if Andrew Cuomo had been honest from the beginning and counted nursing home deaths, like almost every other state, if not every other state, he would not have had the scandal. There'd be nothing to hide. We would just see a higher nursing home death toll in New York. He would get some bad headlines and then we would move on. Instead, he's now under federal investigation. The U.S. attorney in the Eastern District is investigating him. He's being probed over sexual harassment charges unrelated to nursing home deaths by the state attorney general and there are a lot of new questions which you know could have been avoided if he were a more conventional and honest governor um but he chose to downplay and, and hide those deaths and now he might end up paying a political
0: price we'll see because letitia, letitia james uh the state attorney general's uh, investigation into the charges uh is likely to be completed by the end of this summer uh is there other Any leaks? Do we have any sense of uh, what the findings of the report might reveal? No, we don't. Um, They've been very quiet
1: and cautious about it, which I think is fine. I I personally find it irksome and strange when investigators feel the need to leak every single detailed investigation. Let it play out, let it run its course, and let's see what the answers are. So no, we, we don't know. I'm guessing the end of summer, but no one really knows. Um, when it comes out, it'll be significant. We'll see to what level Cuomo was harassing people. And we'll also see perhaps a conclusion to this federal investigation. And that's, that's also quite serious. Meanwhile,
0: he's published a book uh, painting himself uh, in very good light um has anybody gone over the book and found all of the uh the things that may not be totally true?
1: Well, I do that to an extent in my own book. Um I, I don't do it for every single chapter and every single mm-hmm. point in Cuomo's memoir that would have been exhausting, but I do point out in key ways where Cuomo elides or hides information where he is not sharing perhaps what should be shared where he is outright fabricating. And 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 I'm, you know, as, as far as I know, one of the few people who, who've done that. So if you read my book, you can certainly see places where Andrew Cuomo's memoir misleads um, regular New Yorkers who who read it.
0: In one point, at one point in your book, you compare him to another New Yorker from a different era, Robert Moses, whose reputation has gone into serious decline in recent years.
1: Robert Moses is something of an idol for Cuomo. Robert Moses is still, you know, to this day the most powerful figure to reign in New York and that he was making decisions impacting millions of people for 40 odd years. And you know, Cuomo similarly is in, in a position of power now for almost 12 years, you know, nothing like the Robert Moses reign. Um, but I think one similarity between the two men was that they enjoyed a remarkable and profound peak in popularity. Robert Moses was popular for a long, far longer period of time than Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo's approval ratings for most of his um, time in office have been middling. They, they've been mediocre. At times, they've been high, usually after... Um, a unique event like when marriage equality passed or, you know, um, really around then. uh, And I think that was the last time he he ever hit those peaks. So Andrew Cuomo, when he was extremely popular during the pandemic, to me, called called to mind Robert Moses, where reporters are uncritically and pundits celebrating him where he didn't really deserve to be celebrated. And Robert Moses similarly was revered by the New York Press Corps. And that's one of the stories of The Power Broker, which never gets enough emphasis in my mind, which is that it's a book about how journalism failed... New Yorkers. It's not just a book about the history of the highway system and and the history of public housing and most of those projects. It's a book about media failure. And I do see with Cuomo in those early months, real failure when he's being interviewed by his brother on CNN, when he's appearing on the cover of national magazines, when he's getting all this uncritical coverage as Tens of thousands of people are getting sick and dying. 50,000 people died of COVID in New York state. It's a stunning number when you really think about it.
0: How did the Cuomo administration handle outbreaks of COVID-19 within the state's prison population? Not
1: well. And this was another... Undercovered, overlooked part, you know, with the exception of a few really dogged reporters and news organizations of, of the pandemic where the COVID is spreading unchecked through prisons, you know, New York was lucky and that it never got too severe. And that was more luck than anything else. But Andrew Cuomo really took no interest in trying to safeguard the health of prisoners of, of inmates uh, safeguarding, you know, the health of correction officers, you know, prisons obviously are very unsanitary, people are crowded together. And he was very slow to introduce testing, later to introduce vaccines. You know, prisons were not at all a priority for Cuomo, were not a part in any serious way of his COVID response.
0: How has he dealt with portions of the Orthodox Jewish community in regard to their lack of adherence to standard COVID protocols?
1: Um, so it's it's a good question. And you said, yeah, you said the, the Orthodox
0: Jewish communities in particular. In, in two areas, in, uh, in Williamsburg and in Rock right. County. Right. So very high, so... very high rates, much higher than the rest of the state. Yes. Yeah, so, you know,
1: Cuomo and de Blasio too struggled with this, where you would see outbreaks in these communities and, you know, Cuomo actually came under a lot of criticism in the fall of 2020, where, you know, he enacted new crackdowns on gatherings and, and introduced this color coded zone system for neighborhoods based on COVID levels. And, you know what we really saw um, was kind of a, a lack of communication between the Cuomo administration and, and these communities where they felt like they were being singled out, even though COVID rates were high there, they were high in other neighborhoods too. At the same time, they were defying the uh, restrictions being put um, into place by the state. And, and you saw during the pandemic too, where some yeshivas were staying open, those schools were supposed to be closed. It was a thorny situation, Um, you know, I I think it it was hard to navigate. Uh, I I don't know, I think Cuomo, of course, could have done better. I also don't know how well, given just the dynamics of those communities, how insular they can be, and just the challenges of COVID, how different the approach could have been. But I I do think there was a failure of communication and and I, I believe Cuomo, did not communicate well enough with the leaders
0: in these communities didn't he uh blame uh, some of the problems with the distribution of the three COVID 19 vaccines on the federal government as a way of explaining why things weren't going all that well here for a while he, did they have much control he, I mean, over the plan to get vaccines everything, into everything
1: almost anything if anything didn't go well it was the federal government's fault you know mm-hmm. We were slow to ramp up vaccination efforts in December and January. Eventually, we caught up. New York was not alone in that regard. Cuomo put in overly onerous criteria around who could get vaccinated. There was a strange system set up where, you know, only certain types of people could get it. There was something called vaccine fraud, where if you got a vaccine and you weren't supposed to, or you gave one out, you could be fined a million dollars, which was crazy. This was a time we really should have just been getting the vaccines out the door and getting as many people shots as possible. But there was this very exhausting debate about who should get a shot and who doesn't. And that was not unique to New York. That was a problem in other states too. And in retrospect, it was very silly we should have just been giving shots to seniors and making sure as many people got them to stop the spread of COVID.
0: My guest is Ross Barkan, whose book, The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus and the Fall of New York is published by OR Books. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Last December, Governor Cuomo was accused by a number of women of sexual harassment. What was his initial response? How did he uh, explain what they claimed he had done?
1: Depends depended on the woman and the accusation. Some, he said, were entirely fabricated. Others, he said it was a misinterpretation. He would blame the, you know, he he sort of blame the woman and say, you know, I was joking. This is how I greet people. This is how I touch people. This is normal. Um, he would say, you know, me. if I, if I offended you, I'm sorry. And then others, he'd be very defiant. You know, at one point he blamed cancel culture for the amount of accusations being sent his way. So ultimately it was one of defiance and denial. Um, that, that that's what it came down to. I think at one point he was contrite about one of them, um, in terms of a former aide, uh, who accused him, but in general, it was pure defiance. And it was something out of the Republican playbook where he, you know, fulminated against the media and, and, and portrayed himself as a, you know, a grieved underdog when, you know, he was anything, but.
0: But there were, there were photographs. There was that photograph of him holding that woman's face. Yes. Um, So he would say, you know, this is the way I greet people.
1: You know, people do have greetings, you know, in certain cultures where they kiss on the cheek, they, they touch, right. The woman looked terrified. She didn't, clearly didn't want to be greeted that way but yes um that that was a reality um and so you see a real divide you know i think older democrats in particular are less moved by me too accusations and and they feel that men are being unfairly accused or people's behaviors being policed and then younger voters and, and, and people believe that, you know, this behavior needs to be stamped out. So you see a real generational divide around it. And the question will really be what the
0: attorney general report shows. Yeah. Uh, Letitia James, when she does that investigation. Yes. Now, you write about a quote, culture of impunity within the administration and uh, more important, Within Andrew Cuomo himself as a way to look at the converging controversies of sexual harassment and the nursing homes cover up, uh, and you you say he operated in the pure sense from Machiavelli's dictum that it is better to be feared than loved. Yes, and
1: Cuomo has has run his whole you know political career that way. He has very few friends. He has very few allies. You know he he is someone who is content if you're afraid of him and do what he wants. And and he does not need any true friendship. He, he needs power. And he, that's how he operates. And that's how how he's always operated. And some politicians really seek to alliance build Cuomo uh, seeks out transactional relationships, whether it's with donors, whether it's with organized labor, whether it's with politicians, you do meet, do, favors for me and follow my agenda. And then perhaps I will protect you and you go against me and I will crush you. And and no one is a friend for life with Cuomo. There can always be a turn. Um, And that's how he's always conducted himself.
0: Well, New York City, especially, but also New York, New York City, understandably, because so many people came here uh, who we didn't know were infected. And New York State in general was the, the epicenter of the, the COVID pandemic. And now it is, has one of the lowest infection rates in the country. Uh, can't Cuomo be given some credit for that? I mean, infection rates are pretty low everywhere now. I mean, you give, give yeah, but credit. New to York is, in,
1: I think only Connecticut is, has a slightly lower infection rate at this moment. Yeah, we have a, we have a higher rate of vaccination because I think people in general, democ- due to political polarization, people in democratic states are getting vaccinated more and that is tamping down infection rates, which is good. I think the vaccination process, you know, once it uh, overcame its early hiccups was a success, um, but, you know, we're already more than a year into COVID. I, I think the shutdown when it came late was still good and, and that the shutdown did help bend the curve, so to speak, and that was a good thing. It's hard for me to celebrate and give credit when 50,000 people are dead and 30,000 are dead in New York City. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of the metric that I'm always looking at as well. I mean, people died, right? And there's just there's little you can declare a victory over when those deaths happen. You know, it'd be better if we could have reached this point with 30,000 deaths statewide, not 50,000 deaths or 10,000 deaths in New York City, not 30,000 deaths. You know, I mean, that's really, really the fundamental way to judge this. And so, yes, I mean, things are better here. People are getting vaccinated. Things are better in other states. And that's good. I'm happy. And the vaccine is widely available but when that many people have died it's hard to really look back and say well if things were done well um, you know the the families of, of those who suffered
0: don't feel that way Should we assume that he's going to run for re-election right now uh, the the potential candidates don't look all that str- against him, don't look all that strong. Rudy Giuliani's son, for example. But um, are there polls that have been taken that would indicate how, how his, what the public thinks of him right now? I think he is
1: likely to run for reelection, election And I think unless there's a strong challenger, he can win. That's why I, I do think... I I do think he can be defeated if the right Democrat came along. Tish James, the attorney general, would be an ideal candidate. She's a statewide elected official. She's from New York City. She's black. You need to do well in communities of color in New York City to win a Democratic primary statewide. And James is positioned to do that. Will she run? That's an open question. I don't know the answer to that, but she's there and she could run against him, but she might not. And if she doesn't run and no one else does, he'll win again, because I don't think a Republican can win in New York State anymore.
0: Well, I, I received notice that uh, there's there'll be a book launch for the Prince uh, with New yes. York State Assembly members Zoran K. Mamdani uh, this, uh, this Thursday at uh, Tradesman, 22 Bushwick Avenue in Brooklyn outdoors. But I was surprised that there's a scheduled guest appearance from Andrew M Cuomo. How did that happen? In the light of well, what you've written about him in this book, people
1: people will be in for a surprise. It's uh, not quite what you'll expect, but uh, it's a little little surprise. You know, keep that keep that under wraps for now. I think uh, I think uh, people will have fun when they when they come down. Everyone's invited, um, and uh, more excited. You know, Zoran so, so is a friend of mine. He's great state assemblyman, and he. He will be there, and some other some other progressive politicians are expected to come out, um, who've been critics of Cuomo as well. So, you know, I, I hope I hope the book is really a guide for people. I hope they read it, and, and I hope they read it to understand the history of, of politics in the state, to understand what a hellish year we went through and why, and to really get a, a corrective to some of the propaganda that was put out by Cuomo in that memoir, which I, I think really did damage.
0: So how uh, do people have to register to uh, attend the event?
1: You, there's an event bright page um, and you just can RSVP there, but but we're not checking lists or anything. So we just do the RSVP so we can have a idea of the headcount, but people are free to show up. You want to set seven to nine. I encourage anyone to show up and enjoy and buy a book. Uh, they're for sale now. You can buy them from Or Books. They'll be in bookstores, and you can buy it at the event on Thursday as well. So if you want to go buy a book in person, bring bring some cash, bring bring a card, and get one. They're they're cheap. It's a it's a quick read, and I think people will enjoy
0: it. And I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. I've been speaking to Ross Barkhane, who uh, uh, teaches journalism at NYU and at uh, St. Joseph College, Brooklyn. Uh, He uh, is a regular contributor to a number of publications, including The Guardian and The Jacobin. And uh, the book that we've been discussing is The Prince. Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York, published by OR Books. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to Todd McGovern for preparing today's interview. You can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org. And we're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, wherever else podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at org. Well, before I sign off today, I need to take. A moment to ask you to support the station. If you care about Leonard Lopin at large and all the other great programs in WBAI, we need your help to keep it all going because things have gotten really rough. A lot of people have been forced because economically to suspend their support of the station due to the pandemic. So. Uh, Please step up and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And and one great way to support the station throughout the year is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, $10, $15, whatever you feel comfortable with uh, each month. Uh, coming out of uh, whatever you, uh, account you uh, propose until you decide you don't want it anymore. <laughs> but however you donate, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of London located at Large, and, and a big thanks to everyone who is helping keep us on the air with their generosity. And we hope that you'll tune in again for tomorrow's show when attorney Sarah Klein, the first known survivor of sexual abuse by former USA Gymnastics t- Team Dr. Larry Nasser, will discuss the Adult Survivors Act that was recently passed in the New York State Senate. You won't want to miss it.